In the case of 87, it was complete panic. Uh, unlike most situations on the floors of exchanges and financial markets, people would be rushing into the pits to trade. In this case, the traders themselves were so fearful, they were leaving, going to the banks, getting cash because they were fearful that their bank would fail. Risk of Ruin is a podcast about gambling and life and their intersection. I'm John Reeder. This is episode nine, From Blackjack to Black Monday. If you make a list of the five largest single day drops in stock market history, It would include two days in October of 1929, leading up to the Great Depression, and two days in March of 2020, when COVID-19 shook world markets. But the very top of the list, or bottom of the list, depending on how you're looking at it, was October 19th, 1987, when the Dow Jones lost 22% in a single day. It was a Monday, Black Monday actually, and it followed a week where the market had already lost 10%. So try to put yourself in the mindset of investors that spent the weekend hoping for a rebound, and then on Monday morning, look out below. From the opening bell, the market was in free fall. After last Friday's record 108-point loss, analysts had expected a rally. Instead, Uh, it's a panic. Everyone's in panic. Everybody, we're trying to find a bottom. We're trying to, you know, as a floor broker, I, I see stocks trading 10 points below where they traded Thursday, and I'm saying, this this has to be the bottom. And then they trade five points lower than that. By noon, the market was down about 150 points, the tape delayed by more than an hour. But it only got worse as trading brokers struggled to cope with a blizzard of sell orders. Since the market hit a high of 2,722 last August, it lost 17.5% of its value to 22.46 by Friday, and another 508 points today. More and more analysts believe that the bear market is here to stay. It's not that the economic news is so much worse. In fact, some indicators are showing unexpected strength. It's the psychology that's changed. While for five years, investors have looked at the economy as a glass that is half full. Now they're seeing it as half empty. It was in the chaos of Black Monday that Blair Hull, the blackjack card counter turned options trader, stood on the floor of the Chicago Board of Options and made a big bet, as he'd done so many times. But before we get to Black Monday, let's rewind a little. By then, Blair had been an advantage gambler and investor for almost 20 years. So we should start at the beginning. I was I was actually going to school at, at the University of California, Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara. So uh, I did get a bachelor's degree in, in mathematics, uh, ROTC graduate, and went on to... Uh, Spent two years in the military and then got an MBA. Well, that was during the buildup of the Vietnam War. Uh, I would have gone to Vietnam, although the regular Army officers, the West Point graduates and the regular Army officers, people making a career, needed to go to Vietnam. So because it was the early years, I was uh, I escaped that uh, of going to Vietnam. So I was in a training center at Fort Bliss, Texas. That's where I served my active duty. The military is, is uh, you know, if you think about card counting and being a member of a team, uh, being in the military, 
And uh, having that discipline certainly does not hurt you when you go into becoming a, a member of a, of a blackjack team. In the early 70s, Blair was working in middle management at Kaiser Cement when he found blackjack. And he didn't just find blackjack. During his card counting career, Blair rubbed elbows with the forefathers of modern advantage play. My brother-in-law said, hey, I'm making, I, every time I go up to Tahoe, I pay for my vacation by counting cards. And I said, you're crazy. You're an accountant. If, if, you, if that really were happening, you would be betting not at the $2 table, but at the $5 or the $100 table, and you wouldn't be an accountant anymore. And so I took it quite seriously and uh, read every book I could about it, uh, started playing on my own, built a bankroll up to, I probably had almost $10,000 in my bankroll at that time, it, when I, in, in, by 1974, and uh, that's when I met uh, Al Francesco and became part of his team. I still remember I didn't quite have enough for the $12,500 bankroll, and I had to borrow some money from the credit union to put my share of the bank into the, into the team operation on my first team trip. Al Francesco is credited as the inventor of the team strategy where one player is tasked with making the big bets. And this concept of the big player doesn't stop at card counting. Distracting the casino's attention from what's really going on by dividing up the work is a concept that has been reused endlessly in advantage play. Francesco also understood that it wasn't good enough to take someone's word that they could count the cards. Some verification was required. So blackjack teams have always utilized tests to ensure competence. Uh, I had a friend who was in the statistical business, uh, statistics, and he had met Al on an airplane and had given him my name. Actually, then I said, well, give him my name. And so unfortunately, my friend, uh, Jerry Johnson, uh, was killed in an automobile accident uh, shortly after that. Unfortunately, so my connection with Al had really been broken, but somehow Al had kept my number and he called me about a year later and I went and uh, met him and and then I had to take tests to join the team. And the first time I took the tests, I failed a number of the tests. My Either my times uh, for counting the cards were slower than they should have been or, or I made strategy errors. I was using the Thorpe point count at that time, and we had switched to the Revere advanced point count. And so it was a more difficult counting system. And so I immediately, my next trip, the blackjack trip that I took, I, I switched and I was able to play. I played 20 hours using a, that counting system, came back and was able to pass the test to, to make the team. Today, the dominant card counting system is high-low, and its beauty lies in its simplicity. It's just adding and subtracting ones. The Revere count used by Blair's team was quite a bit more complicated. My best guess is that a new card counter could count twice as fast in high-low and become proficient with half the training as compared to the Revere system. It's also now widely acknowledged that when you're playing a shoe game with multiple decks, a simple count will perform about as well as a more complicated count. But Blair was playing before that idea became conventional wisdom. The early teams were test cases for putting theory into practice. They also had to invent a communication system. To do that, Al Francesco 
is said to have studied the tendencies of gamblers and then made his signals out of things people naturally do in casinos. There were counters and big players, and you, when you joined the team, you became a, you were a counter, and you had to work your way up, and you had to be disciplined and show up. It's like a job. Uh, there might be in a in a pit would have ten tables. Well, you'd have counters at four of the tables, and then the big player would come in and play where the count was the most favorable. And there was a series of hand signals that would, or, or body language signals that would tell you when the deck was hot or cold. We were the first successful, economically successful team and on a big scale in Nevada. And this occurred in 1974 and five. And um, so we, we would choose the big casinos. We went over a weekend, so we blended in with a lot of the big action. When I was on the team, there were two big players, two or three big players, and we had counters. We would have four or five counters per big player. So on some of our trips, we'd have three big players and uh, as many as 18 counters. So we had a team. Sometimes we'd take a team, would have 20 players on the team. Counting the cards is just a small amount of the required skill needed to win long term at Blackjack. Maybe the biggest hurdle is getting your mind around the idea that losses are a fact of life. The longer you play, the more inevitable a massive losing streak becomes. There's no question. There's there's a rush of uh, uh, when you've got this fluctuating capital and you do have an advantage, but you have to be so disciplined to make sure that uh, you know you lose you lose half your bankroll and you've got to cut your bets in half. That's a pretty discouraging thing to happen. But many times your bankroll is you're going to lose half your bankroll. That's why you have a large amount of money because you, you you might have to lose half of it. And it's uh, it's uh, the discipline in order to uh, lose three big bets in a row and no, now I can't bet quite as big is, uh, is, uh, is, is, is tough. That's the biggest hurdle that people have in the, and not only in, in playing a game like this, but also in the financial markets. Blair also crossed paths with other pioneers of the game, including the inventor of various blackjack computers, the Silicon Valley engineer, Keith Taft. In the late seventies, early eighties, I, uh, I took a number of trips and, and, uh, and knew the Tafts quite well. I had one of their uh, first computer in the shoe operations was became proficient of operating with my toes, of inputting the cards through my toe, toes and getting a signal back uh, through a, uh, a buzzer that uh, zapped me at, in various places. In an earlier episode of this podcast, Blackjack Hall of Famer Tommy Highland said that even though he had used computers in casinos, he never felt comfortable with whole card play. Blair echoed a similar sentiment. I think it was Tommy Highland uh, said that he just did not, a whole card play did not appeal to him. And it was sort of interesting. I, I felt the same thing. Um, I felt that skill, uh, shuffle tracking and counting, it was sort of the honest way to do it. I just, whole carding, I, I, just, uh, I just cringed at that uh, thing and completely stayed away from it. The team concepts invented by Al Francesco eventually became known to the world because one of the team members wrote a book. Ken Houston gave up the secret sauce in a book called The Big Player that he co-wrote with Roger Rappaport. The publishing of the book was a big deal to Blair's team, but it had a much larger impact outside the team. I want to offer a brief digression 
to try to put the influence of the book into context. The world's most famous blackjack team is the MIT team, which is the subject of the movie 21, as well as the Ben Mesrick book, Bringing Down the House. The book is heavily fictionalized, but the MIT team was a real thing, and it was active in various formulations going back to the late 70s. In fact, they also employed big player Collins, which the founders of the team had read about in Ken Houston's book. So not only did the MIT teams come about as a result of the Francesco team, but the book, Bringing Down the House, followed from events set in motion by an incredibly similar book that was published some 25 years earlier. The fact that today's generation of card counters often cite the movie 21 as their inspiration to learn blackjack means that Ken Houston's book set off a chain reaction that continues to this day. Although, the people who are going to be least impressed by that series of events are Ken's former teammates. Ken Houston joined the team before I joined the team, but I was promoted to be a big player before Ken Houston was. I think that was a little bit because of my reliability. Uh, Ken was uh, Ken partied a lot. Uh, he was an egomaniac. He wasn't a reliable member of the team. And so Ken was actually promoted after I was. And I uh, regret the fact that I actually recommended to, to Al Francesco that Ken be promoted because he then went on to write a book and, and, published, and, and published exactly what we were doing. And, and we were earning a good living doing this and a, a good money, it was important to us to keep this a secret. And Ken was the last person you wanted to tell anything to if you wanted to keep a secret. It's ironic that he was uh, the executive vice president of the Pacific Stock Exchange. He was like the number two guy there. He had an MBA, Harvard MBA, I believe. And uh, he's a very smart guy. In fact, Ken and I uh, on the on the team would generally work out the element of uh, the gambler's ruin numbers as to what we could bet under certain conditions. And uh, we did some computer simulations. I could write, I was a computer programmer to some extent. I could code. And uh, we, to try to figure out, uh, you know, there's one thing in a gaming, in a game is you need to get an advantage, but you need to know how much to bet at any one time. That's probably as, as important as getting the advantage. And so we worked out all those numbers together. It's simultaneously true that a lot of advantage players have been inspired by Ken Houston and also that he sold out his own teammates for personal fame. The team had been barred and, and this was, uh, it was unfortunate, although I was continuing to play individually and I actually formed a number of teams myself in the late 70s. So even though I was on the, I was still at Kaiser Cement, but then I transitioned to be a market maker in the Pacific Stock Exchange with trading options. On the weekends, I would still take trips to uh, Las Vegas and Tahoe and Reno uh, to play with a smaller team instead of the 20 some people that we had. We had six people and we just, we scaled it down to about at half the size of the bets so that we could, we could play under the radar. The increasing casino heat from making big bets is the reality that every card counter eventually runs into. Some counters look for other plays with less heat. Some try disguises. Some just put their heads down and deal with short playing sessions and frequent backoffs. But Blair had a fascination with the financial markets, and so he spent more and more time working on a trading strategy that could be similar to the edge he'd found in Blackjack. I was married and had three children at that time and had a full-time job at Kaiser Cement. And so I was 
and I kept going to uh, going to Las Vegas on weekends, and that took away that was a lot of time away from the family too. And so I wanted to try to find a way I could make a living, do something in California. I tried poker. I was a terrible poker player. There are only two things you need to do there: you need to be able to read people and bluff. I was a terrible bluffer, and uh, I couldn't read people where where. So you want me at the poker table if you're have a poker game going. I'm terrible. Uh, so I, I came up with a strategy of uh, stock options that started to trade. And I figured that if you could get the expected value of an option, uh, if, you could, if you could figure out the possibilities of where the stock would go, and then you could determine a probability that they would get there, and then you've multiplied the outcome times the probabilities, you'd get what would be called the expected value. And if you took into account dividends and interest rates, you could get the true value of an option. And so I actually produced an option value, an option model, and tried to, and started buying cheap options and selling expensive options. And that's, uh, uh, of course, that that way of valuing options was published by two people, uh, Fisher Black and Myron Scholes. It's called the Black Scholes model. And so my model actually converges to the Black-Scholes model. And um, I was trading that at that time. And it's interesting that Ken Houston was leaving the, he was leaving the Pacific Stock Exchange just about the time that I became a member and leased a seat for $500. I remember I leased a seat for $500 a month on the Pacific Stock Exchange. I, I was trading for my own account and doing some computer runs that would tell me what options were cheap and which options were expensive. And... I, one day I went down to the Pacific Stock Exchange and I saw what the, how the orders were handled down there and I said, whoa, if I'm going to play this game, I need to be on the floor of the exchange. And that's what led me to lease a seat at the Pacific Stock Exchange and go down there. The venture capitalist Mark Andreessen wrote an influential essay in the Wall Street Journal titled, Software is Eating the World, in which he argued that we collectively undervalue the impact that software has in creating high-margin, defensible businesses. Andreessen wrote that essay in 2011, and he's widely lauded for crystallizing an idea that explains much of the world today, including the success of Facebook, Amazon, Google, and other internet giants. But Blair Hull had been pursuing a version of that idea in the financial markets since the 70s. He started his options career with a thesis— that algorithm-driven trading would be the future. And he pursued that idea for his entire career. I believe there was a data source that I downloaded. I downloaded closing prices from the stock itself every day. I used those stock prices to calculate the standard deviation of the stock prices. And then I input those into my model, which would tell me the value of an option given a certain number of days to expiration, uh, how long a time there was that the option would exist. And uh, then I then I calculated those sheets. I would print those sheets every morning, and then I would go down and trade with those on the, on the trading floor that day. Blair earned his initial option stake through his blackjack play, but his start in the markets wasn't as simple as just deciding that he was going to be a full-time trader. Even though I still had a full-time job, I'd lease the seat, and I'd go down I'd go there at uh, 6.30 in the morning, and I'd trade from 6.30 to 8.30. I'd take BART, uh, Barrier Rapid Transit from San Francisco to Oakland, work from 9 to 12, jump on BART, go back and trade the close from 12 to 
and then and then jump back on BART and go back to work at Kaiser Cement. And I did that for about six weeks. And then I said, I was so t- exhausted because then I, at the end of the day, I had to go prepare to trade the next day uh, that I told my boss at Kaiser Cement that if he had me in his long-term future, he should probably uh, change his plans for me. I just said, I'd like to leave at some point. I don't want to leave my, I, I want to finish my projects that I'm working on, but and I left Kaiser Cement and Gypsum and worked full time as, as a market maker on the Pacific Stock Exchange. And at that time, when I did that, I was actually I had, a, I had about a twenty five thousand dollar options bankroll, and I think I was down two thousand dollars at that point. But I made the leap of faith to say I could I could do it. It turns out that even advantage players have a little gamble in them. Blair was negative for his options career, had a twenty five thousand dollar bankroll, and was leasing a seat that would cost him $6,000 a year. But he rolled the dice anyway. I believe at the end of the first year, in fact, I can remember these numbers. I actually have these numbers recorded at some point. I think at the end of the first year, I think I had $100,000 in my account. And then at the end of uh, two years, I had $400,000 in my account. It it wasn't without losses, though, uh, that occurred. But I did have an advantage and continued to play the game. A simple rule of thumb to adjust for inflation is that you can take a dollar in 1980, and multiply it by three to get the value in today's dollars. So Blair's 400000 in capital would be about $1.2 million today. With proof that his strategy was working, Blair set his sights higher. In the markets, uh, just as in the game of advantage players, uh, you need to continually innovate. Uh, the world does not stay static, and you need to continue to uh, bring in new ideas. And um, I think it was in 1980 that I, while I was on the Pacific Stock Exchange, really for the most of three years, 77, 8, and 9. And then in 1980, I moved really, uh, although I was still living in California, um, my operation was mostly in Chicago. And I'd go to Chicago for two weeks and then come back and stay a week in California. So I, I really moved from the smaller game, sort of from the $5 poker game to the $25 poker game by going to Chicago. Through the 80s, Blair continued to grow his capital and also began to grow hull trading as an operation. When Black Monday rolled around in 1987, that initial 25000 had grown into millions. But Black Monday was the kind of day where you could lose everything. The crash started in Asia, and then the dominoes fell as each market opened across the globe. By the time the U.S. opened, it was chaos. Some stocks couldn't even trade for hours because there were no buy orders. And the fog of war made it impossible to get good information. So rumors were the only thing to go on. I was uh, making markets in the CBOE, the Chicago Board of Options Exchange, but I was the only member of the firm that had a full board of trade seat where they traded the major market index that was part of the, that was the lookalike to the Dow Jones average. And so there was a futures contract on the, on the Chicago Board of Trade, there were rumors that they were going to halt trading completely. So we had a very small firm. I said, well, get somebody to go to the library and find out what's happening on trading halts. Well, this is sort of ridiculous because we're sort of at war here and, and I want somebody to go to the library. This is in today today's time, you just look on the internet, but you couldn't do it in 1987. So I, I thought about this a little bit and I said, this is a major panic. And I said, this is... This is a major panic. If there's anything we want to do is we don't want to be short on this. We want to be long on the halt. 
And so I told the whole firm that. And and then in the meantime, the Drexel Burnham, which was in financial, ended up having financial troubles later, one guy in the pit says, he knew that I was I was one of the larger players in the pit. And he whispered to me and said, where will you buy a hundred? And I told, gave him a ridiculous price. And he said, he sold them to me. And then it was, uh, the major market index was trading in, it would normally trade at five cent increments. Now it's trading at $5 increments. And I gave him a ridiculous price. And he said, you own them. And I sort of gulped because it was a larger trade than I should have done. And then he sold me another 50 later. And that was, there were 150 contracts traded at this one price. I believe it was 287. That was the low of the market. And from there on, actually, the I, I can tell you the times exactly. It was 1130 that the Chicago Mercantile halted trading. And um, this was three minutes after they halted trading that uh, this trade went up. And from there on, I think people just sort of relaxed. I, th- I think it's, and uh, the market went straight up from there. I just made a decision that in a complete panic, uh, one should go opposite to the panic. And it has to be a crescendo. It's got to be the ending of it. And we saw that again with the pandemic in about March 23rd, when over that weekend where the world was going to end, and we knew, I knew completely that it was the it was it was the bottom of the market. When the dust settled, the overall market was down twenty percent for the month of October nineteen eighty seven. But hull trading bucked that trend. They started the month with nineteen million in capital and ended it with twenty six million. Blair's path in the eighties and nineties was upward, just not always in a straight line. In nineteen eighty one, he lost half his capital in just two trades but he still ended the year positive. In 1995, the firm lost money and they cut 20% of their staff. But Blair was always focused on his original idea. Blackjack was a very objective game. You'd keep the count, you'd convert it into a true count, and you'd bet a proportional to the true count. I tried to do everything I could in the financial markets in a consistent, objective way. Our mission statement at Hull Trading Company uh, was improving capital markets through trading, technology, and teamwork. What we were doing is we were trying to create a, a a system by which you would objectively make decisions. We thought we were improving capital markets because we were providing liquidity and making the cost of entering the market less uh, to people that were buying. And, and when you're getting out, they got more money for it. So we were actually doing something that was good for society. And this is unlike the issues of, of, of beating casinos, where you're, all you're doing is taking away money from a casino. We thought we were actually improving, uh, improving capital markets. By 1999, the vision of having a systematic approach to the markets with an emphasis on technology had been realized to the point that Goldman Sachs acquired Hull Trading. So Blair Hull, the Army officer turned middle manager, turned card counter, turned options trader, had built whole trading into a powerhouse that Goldman paid $531 million to acquire. Henry Paulson, the future Treasury Secretary, was still the CEO of Goldman at that time, and he said that Hull's strength in the electronic markets was strategic. Well, there's no question we had a pretty big footprint in the financial markets. As Hank Paulson told me, it was 
it was really a DNA transfer. The way in which we thought about the markets were di was different than the way Goldman had been thinking about them. We had 250 people that worked for the firm when they acquired it in late 99. They built the firm to two, 450, uh, doubled the size of the firm within two years. And so it was training. It was that whole training process that took people throughout Goldman uh, that helped them capture major market shares in, I know, in both Europe and in Japan. In the 20 years since the sale to Goldman, Blair has stayed active in the markets, and we're going to hear more about what he's up to now. But I think it might be good to hear some of the lessons he's learned as an advantage player and investor. Well, everybody's looking for an advantage. And so uh, there's no question that there's a shelf life to uh, a new idea. But there's some ideas um, that uh, do last for a long period of time. There are some that continue to last. Those advantages aren't as great as those that come and go, though. And so uh, you'll have a lower rate of return and a lower return on risk, but you can get excess returns in the long run in some strategies. When I was researching this episode, I found a talk that Blair had given to an R user group. R is a programming language, and I guess my assumption was that all of the programming would have been delegated to others long ago. But Blair still codes. I actually find that if you can write a little bit of code yourself uh, and you can do things and uh, you can, uh, you're better able to communicate with programmers, you're better able to estimate how long jobs will take to get done. And in this pinch, you can do it yourself. I think it's extremely valuable and I still do. I'm still uh, somewhat proficient in R. Although over the years, it was uh, it really started out I, at, at graduate business school at Santa Clara. I did Fortran. Uh, then I, I moved to BASIC. I've done Pascal. I've done um, a number of like C. I've done some C. So language has changed, but the, the process of coding doesn't. And uh, it's important to be able to understand, I think, uh, to be able to do some coding. Blair is a rich guy who once counted cards. And I was entertained to hear that he knows of other rich guy card counters. Apparently, Bill Gross, the Bond King and founder of PIMCO, is a former card counter, as well as Charles Koch. In fact, Blair met Charles Koch at a cocktail party, and Blair did what any card counter would do. He quizzed Charles Koch. Uh, but it was no question I... I, I, uh, I drilled him as to what, what he did and what the system was and how did he... How did he determine his bet size? And, and he, there's no question that he had played. He was a player in the 60s. Of course, the ideal of the rich guy card counter is Ed Thorpe, who is a further inspiration to Blair because Thorpe also published early work on the valuation of financial derivatives. Well, Ed Thorpe wrote a book, uh, I believe it was uh, 68 or 69, Beat the Market. It was Beat, beat the Dealer and then Beat the Market. Uh, and it, it dealt with um, warrants, uh, were, which were longer-term options, and how to price those. So, yeah, there's no question Ed Thorpe is my hero. Blair's current project is the Hull Tactical ETF, which attempts a market timing strategy. In other words, Blair is still looking for an edge. I'm looking for the advantage. Yes, I'm still an advantage player, but I'm, I'm doing it mostly in the financial markets. And um, I'd love to be able to take some of the, these advantages 
uh, and especially in options and um, actually the ETF, which has the symbol HTUS, is now uh, just about a week ago, we at the beginning of this year, we started to trade options in the exchange traded fund. So we're trying to bring some of these advantages and some of the mispricings of options uh, into to allow the public to have access to that kind of return. And um, it's, a bit, it's a very difficult problem to solve, but um, we're trying to uh, do that within HTUS. Blair's story is incredible, but one thing it's not is an overnight success story. His accomplishments are staggering in part because he compounded positive results over such a long time. This goes back to the idea Blair has emphasized a number of times, which is that staying in the game is at least as important as getting an edge. Well, the people that are successful doing it understand the trade-off between risk and return. And understanding that, that you can be in a game that you can uh, that you don't win all the time, but understanding uh, the chances that you of, of how big your drawdowns can be and keeping the faith during those those dips in capital are what separate the men from the boys. Uh, and it's that discipline of understanding and and staying hanging in there during the tough times and having the faith and the confidence that uh, you will be a winner in the long run that creates a successful operation. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. Special thanks to Blair Hull. I also want to thank Richard Munchkin for putting me in touch with Blair. You can follow the show on Twitter at Half Kelly, and you can email us riskofruinpod at gmail.com. 